Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, editor with Gestalt IT, Rich Straffolino. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get to it in just one moment. But first, I have to introduce my co-host. He's the multi-cloud maven, the Hoosier with the hankering for HPC. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Nalbone. Ken, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Rich. And sorry, I don't have any clever names for you. It's okay. I like to spring them on people and make it awkward for everybody involved. Um, speaking of which, our, this one of the usual co-hosts for the Gestalt IT Runhound, Tom Hollingsworth is not here. He's at RSA, but you know the old saw. You can take Tom to RSA, but you can't take RSA out of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We're going to be talking about something that was announced at RSA, a uh, project from uh, Chronicle, or a new product by Chronicle. You may not be familiar with the company. They're a project that was spun out of Alphabet's X Incubator, so now it's kind of a separate company under the big Alphabet holding company umbrella. And it released its first products and spinning out. It's called Backstory. It's designed to collect, retain, and maintain history of network traffic. This will utilize a lot of Google search IP and look for overarching patterns across combined data sets of clients with the ability to opt out for those that are privacy conscious. But kind of the, the idea of, you know, you can pool everybody's information and look for overall uh, patterns, especially when it comes to threats and that kind of stuff. Chronicle has partnerships with Avast and uh, Proofpoint and is integrating with endpoint security system Carbon Black. I've seen this kind of spun as a Splunk competitor and a lot of the media coverage there. And certainly mm -hmm. some of the sources I was uh, looking at were saying that there was a precipitous drop in the Splunk stock price uh, right after this was announced. So uh, maybe uh, the market also seeing that as well. Uh, but here's where I think it gets really interesting. Chronicle is making the pricing for this, uh, for Backstory, completely flat on a per-user or per-employee basis for a company, rather than looking at it by the amount of data stored or streamed, as is the case of Splunk. Mm -hmm. um, is the combination, Ken, of, let's say, a Google Compute backend, you know, kind of the, even though this is not a Google product proper, but, you know, kind of the alphabet compute, mm -hmm. the search chops, UI, and a predictable pricing, a magic combination in this market? I think the technologists are going to love the not so the Google but not so Google compute backend for sure and the technology that they bring to the table. The bean counters are going to love the predictable pricing. I mean that's a big thing these days when uh, enterprises trying to make a switch from capex to opex. Predictable costs are a big deal. Um, I do think that you know uptake might be slow because. Yeah, this isn't technically a Google product, but it's still in that family. And Google has a reputation for just suddenly shuttering projects that they no longer care about. Uh, I don't know. What do you think with the partnerships they have with these other companies, such as Carbon Black and Avast and Proofpoint? Is that a stronger signal that they're committed to this and that people can rely on it? Do you think that people are going to have that reaction that uh, I'm not sure I want to take on the product? I'm not sure it's going to be there in a year or two. I think the fact that this was spun out into its own company and they waited to do that until they released something is definitely a strong indicator that, okay, this isn't going to be, you know, a, a you know, one of the weird journalism projects or something that they do that can get shut down at any time um, or even, you know, a weird uh, Google lab or a, a Gmail lab experiment or something like that. I do think mm -hmm. that gives it a little bit more of credibility of, you know, kind of being an in, quote unquote independent company. Um that being said, it is an unknown quantity at this point. I do think it's very interesting, though, that in all of their messaging, Chronicle has been saying, you know, we're not, this is something completely new. You know, we're not competing directly with anyone, which also kind of signals to me when it first launches, it's going to look very pretty and be very appealing to maybe people that have never done this before, right? For organizations that, that aren't using Splunk, that aren't using, or maybe are only using some kind of homegrown uh, network analytics or network history kind of aggregating tool. But it won't necessarily be feature comparable in, in, in a direct one-to-one -one way with Splunk. So I think that will be very interesting to see what this actually looks like. 
Yeah, and that's the thing that kind of struck me in all these articles with reports of Splunk's value suddenly decreasing on the market. It's like, yeah, Splunk is somewhat of a competitor to this, but it, it is not a one-to-one -one comparison. And I see far more use cases for Splunk in general in the enterprise, and I'm sure their customers do as well, beyond just the security uh, aspect that, you know, this new product from Alphabet addresses. Yeah, and what's the uh, what's the API story going to be? What's the integration story going to look like? Mm -hmm. Are you going to have to partner with individual endpoint protection services to kind of get the benefits of this? Um, you know, it can, can it be anything? Is this going to be a common API? I would assume so. You know, with kind of that that Alphabet DNA, but you never know. Nope. All right. So uh, in in other news, Ken, uh, let's get physical here. We're talking about mechanical hard drives. Kind of the big uh, story about mechanical hard drives recently. Adding a lot of density, but performance has kind of just been where it's at for, I don't know, the past 10 years. You can make a drive spin faster, but when you're spinning at the same rate, you know, IOPS hasn't really been moving. But we've seen some interesting movements from both Western Digital and Seagate showing off dual actuator designs. Uh, this is designed to give you better IOPS per terabyte and specifically is really looking at hyperscalers. Kind of, you know, single drive, better IOPS per terabyte. Sounds good, right? There's been previous attempts at dual actuators that have been... I'm going to say horrible. Um, basically, what these tried to do is put two, um, two heads on the same platter. So if you think about it as a record player putting a second arm uh, on the same record, causes all sorts of vibration issues and increased heat, which leads to eventually to increased failure rates, which is like a big, big deal when it comes to hard drives. Uh, you don't want these to fail all that much. Uh, these new designs from Seagate and Western Digital both kind of use the same methodology or the same basic idea. They keep uh, one head per platter, but the kind of the top uh, and bottom actuators are on the same pivot, but act independently. So you can think of it as a stack of what, four, five, six platters. You would divide that evenly. So if it was six, it would be three and three. Uh, th you know, the top actuator would control three. The bottom would control the bottom three. They would can be completely separate and independent of each other operating within those groups of three. Um, Western Digital is putting this on a SAS drive and see, and this can actually be seen as independent hosts. So when you're looking at it as addressable, you actually see two discs. Mm -hmm. It's just within the same drive. Overall, there's a, a lot of power savings, 26%, which when you're talking about hyperscalers with, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of discs, you know, can add up a lot. Uh, you can get double the performance per slot again, because you're kind of, basically, it's kind of like a little RAID zero package in there. If you want to dumb it down to a stupidly simple way. Uh, Seagate calls their tech Mach 2, kind of operates uh, on a similar basis. We don't have quite as much technical detail. There was actually, at Storage Field Day uh, last week, uh, Western Digital did a, deep di a little bit of a deep dive and gave a little bit of a preview of what they're going to be doing this. And they're going to mm -hmm. be sampling this and showing off demos of this, I believe, at the Open Compute Conference, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so rather than just – when we're talking about hard disk here – these companies are trying to get more IOPS per drive rather than just simply increasing density. That's certainly always going to be something that they're going to want to do. But how does that impact the long-term use of spinning disk in the data center? Can if we can squeeze out extra IOPS here? Because theoretically, it doesn't have to be just two independent actuators. You know, Seagate is being very aggressive and saying, you know, we could see three, four in there at some time. I'll say what, what this says to me is that the uh, rumors of the hard drive's death are greatly exaggerated, right? We keep seeing one innovation after another that, you know, it, it's not really pushing the, the hard drive forward to be somehow competitive with SSDs. Nobody's expecting that, but the value proposition is still there, right? You want massive amounts of data and you want to be able to access it in a reasonable amount of time. You're not looking for a high performance application, but you want some cheap and deep storage, as folks say, and innovations like this kind of keep it in the running for that. So everybody keeps talking about, well, we've made so many innovations with density within um, SSDs and in terms of cost 
that are going to really make it competitive with the hard drive. And then something like this comes out. You know, we're not just increasing platter density anymore. Somehow we're increasing performance per terabyte with these dual actuators. Cool, good stuff. Uh, how long before I get them in my home NAS? I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, to that point about it, you know, possibly being addressed as two devices. Hopefully nobody's dumb enough to try to stripe data across, uh, you know, both of these and leave it unprotected in some way. You just the app. You have to be careful when using it with, with with those applications. But as long as you know the hyperscalers that do deploy these they're being targeted are smart about it uh yeah it's it's a win for them absolutely do you think we'll see in i don't know five ten years if you know the mechanical hard drive is still a going concern here I, again the, the death of the mechanical hard drive is i think greatly exaggerated i think people see it in the long term but i don't think we're going to be there anytime soon do you mm -hmm. think though that that will become like an enterprise only or a business only solution that can like as a consumer you know, we're already seeing the majority of bits being shipped to hyperscalers, right? SNE has kind of come out and had that figured out there for a couple of years now. Um, do you think we'll see that the mechanical hardware really only has use in this kind of hyperscale or, or, you know, very dense data center kind of environment? Yeah, I, I would think so. Because, I mean, what are consumers buying? They're buying laptops and desktops with a drive big enough to boot in and store some of their data. They don't need the, the vast amounts of space. You know, you set some consumers buy a NAS, uh, you know, and put it in their house for their long-term storage of their photos and home videos and whatever. And, you know, we'll probably see the physical drives continue in the, those for years to come. But the, by and large, the majority of consumer drives are going to be SSDs, even NVMe, depending on what, what they're buying, you know, for their own personal use. And even, you know, the, you know, work machines, the laptops and the PCs on the desks of enterprise America, uh, enterprise companies in, uh, all over, not just America, but worldwide, you know, they're going to be some kind of solid state as well, that I would expect. Well, going from the most pedestrian, perhaps, of storage mediums, sure, why not? Let's head on over to the cutting edge. We're talking about quantum computing. Mainstream quantum computing, still a ways off, let's be real here. Um, you know, D-Wave's out there doing their weird quantum mechanical or like traditional computing kind of combination there. But pure quantum computing, I think, is still very much a science experiment. But Microsoft is making plans to stay relevant after classical computing is over. The company announced their Microsoft Quantum Network, a group of individuals and organizations that will work with Microsoft to advance quantum computing, develop practical applications, and build, uh, the, you know, kind of how quantum computing will work in business, the enterprise, personally, uh, going forward. The, uh, you know, just just kind of uh, kind of a gathering of the minds here, and also kind of benefiting Microsoft at the same time. Uh, this will build off Microsoft's software foundation that they've already built. Uh, we're talking about the Q Sharp language that they released. Uh, I want to say about 18 months ago. The Quantum Developer Kit that kind of went along with that, and eventually Microsoft plans to offer quantum computing services through Azure, which would be really cool. IBM is kind of already offering this. I want to say they have basically available to anyone that wants to try out. A, it's a really small quantum computer, just a couple of qubits. And then they have a commercial mm -hmm. version that they just released a couple of months ago. But still, again, I feel like that's just for testing purposes at this point. Microsoft talking about a very serious, you know, Azure business application. Uh, we still have yet to see Microsoft's debut of a universal quantum computer, what they're calling something that's much less error prone than anything that's out there right now. It requires a, a ton of precision and super cooling and all sorts of craziness that quantum computers you know, kind of need at this point. Until that happens, can we really evaluate Microsoft's approach to this emerging field? Or is it safe to say that these are at least solid foundations? It seems to me that they're definitely putting the cart before the horse with this one, just because they want to be aspirational, prepared for the future. But as you said, we've got development kits for products that aren't out there yet. Yeah. Okay, great. You can develop this, but you can't do anything to test it or, or you know, prove out anything until all, all of a sudden, you know, 
this magical quantum computer just comes through the door. Uh, but what about when it does come? What is it going to do? Not only for these, you know, as we said, as, as I said, aspirational um, goals, you know, forwarding, you know, biotech and science. But uh, what if somebody starts all of a sudden using it to attack cryptography, which should be far easier to to attack with a quantum computer than it would with a traditional computer? Uh, I, I wonder if any. I I would believe that people are thinking about that. I would hope they are, but who knows? Uh, you know, can anything save us? Can, can anything keep us secure in, in the immediate future? Uh, you know, I, I think actually, um, oh, who is it? Is it Bruce Schneider, the security researcher, uh, has a, a number of posts kind of looking at a post-quantum cryptography future and kind of the steps that are being taken on there. Certainly, I think a lot of uh, approaches become null and void whenever that happens. However, luckily, we're not at the point where someone's just going to turn on one tomorrow and all of a sudden, True. you know, classical computing as we know it um, is going to go away. I think even after we get to practical quantum computing, it's going to be a number of years before that gets down to any, you know, any kind of uh, level where that becomes a concern. I, at least I hope so. And uh, I say this and then, you know, secretly multiple national governments <laughs> all have quantum computers. <laughs> I've just completely shattered encryption for years and years and years. And we just don't know about it yet. Um, the but the, you know this has obviously really the, the classical examples they use are for you know climate mapping weather mapping that kind of stuff where it's just mm -hmm. super complex and it would take you know multiple thousands of years to do this um you know kind of molecular biology has a lot of uh, definite applications those are the classical or or the the usual suspects when it comes to the benefits of quantum computing but yeah Right now, it's all unicorns and rainbows, and it all sounds great um, until you realize that uh, it's I, I barely understand what a qubit is. So let's let's <laughs> keep it real. Um, getting back into the nitty gritty, the business world, Ken, I, I need your take on this uh, hot or cold weather it may be. Uh, Juniper Networks announced Monday that it will acquire MIST systems for a cool $405 million. The plan is to incorporate MIST wireless LAN AI platform into Juniper's LAN, SD-WAN, and security services. So basically you know, bringing Juniper into the wireless market, kind of big news there. Uh, mm -hmm. Both companies have recently presented at Tech Field Day, most uh, uh, missed systems, I believe, most recently at Mobility Field Day 3. Uh, and I've been watching those videos kind of bone up on what they were offering. And, they, you know, they really impressed me in that, you know, when I hear AI anything in the enterprise, I'm like, uh, I roll, okay, you have a predictive algorithm that, you know, f has a feedback loop. Great, it's not AI. Um, Mist was actually doing a lot of really innovative stuff that wasn't just Lyft service, wasn't just buzzword bingo. I'm looking into doing, you know, AI-based remediation and and that kind of stuff uh, for for wireless problems. You know, causing tickets to close before companies even realize that they're open. That kind of stuff, really cool stuff. Um, and doing some, uh, uh, you know, kind of AI-enabled radio resource management. I think we can get into the argument of whether that's AI, but they had legit researchers and took the time to tell the Tech Field Day audience you know, kind of why this wasn't, uh, you know, just buzzword bingo. The big takeaway here is now Juniper is in the wireless market, like I said, but could the AI assets be an even bigger deal long-term or is Juniper op going into a whole new market the big story here? If the AI um, assets live up to the hype, then it's certainly the bigger story because, you know, being in the wireless market, good, that's great. You've got another revenue stream, um, but wireless hardware in and of itself is not that exciting. It's mostly a commodity. Uh, so, Big deal, but um, kind of like you were, you mentioned um, the AI, and I haven't had a chance to uh, bone up on this like you have and watch the field day videos, so I don't know exactly um, how far this goes and what it does. But you know, I'm kind of what you mentioned about tickets being resolved before the business ever knew they were open. Uh, basically, Tom's not here, so I can say this: 
network automation is still stuck somewhat in the 20th century and something like AI can even leapfrog the problems that uh, already exist within the networking space of not being able to manage your network in a more automated API driven fashion. If all of a sudden, not only are things happening automatically, but without any user intervention whatsoever, if the AI can take over, that, that's, that's an even bigger story to me. The other th item that kind of stuck out to me, and, and I'm just kind of running through the implications of this in my head, is that to be an SD-WAN company, I mean, it used to be it, all, the, all the big, you know, kind of legacy uh, uh, companies, you know, I'm thinking of Cisco, VMware, have kind of all absorbed or developed their own SD-WAN solutions, you know, modern SD-WAN solutions. I mean, Cisco went out specifically and bought Viptela, you know, for that reason. Um, so is now the next evolution of that story, hey, if you're going to do SD-WAN, you also need to do wireless, you know, kind of one-stop shop for everything to kind of just extend that, you know, software-defined, you know, fabric, for lack of a better term, just everywhere that possibly that networking could reach. Um, that, that to me is also an interesting takeaway from this. Yeah, and if it's not AI, it's at least software is the future uh, of networking and, and infrastructure in general, right? I mean, yeah. everything's being commoditized, and the differentiator is what you can do in software. Absolutely. Um, speaking of things that uh, aren't software, let's talk about some hard financials. Talking about Dell EMC, right? They're public again. That means they have to report earnings. We got the first look into how the company was doing after they went public again. In Q4, they pulled in $23.84 billion in revenue, basically meeting uh, kind of the Wall Street expectations there. But the big number I saw was a $287 million loss, which doubled from last year and was like five times, I think analysts had expected them, a less than $50 million loss uh, on the quarter. So, you know, big news there. Um, other ways, uh, you know, looking at revenue from some of their business segments, servers and revenue revenue, or excuse me, servers and networking revenue grew 14% in the quarter. Uh, VMware revenue was up 14% as well. Storage grew a slower pace, 7%, but was increasing in market share, which I think is very interesting based on uh, what they're doing there. The company has also, uh, you know, reported on the debt that they took on when they merged with EMC back in 2016. Now, $14.6 billion of the $67 billion has been paid down, although interestingly that it, the rate of which it's being paid down has slowed down since it cost them like $5 billion to go public. It's silly mm -hmm. money. Let's just throw it around. Sure, why not? Um, but interesting. Now we can kind of compare what they're doing to HPE, other you know other uh, you know these kind of other giant IT conglomerates there, and looking at the revenue growth, that certainly seems impressive, even with the loss on the quarter. Anything surprising to you in these first batch of results from Dell EMC? Not particularly, because they have a huge breadth of co companies within the Dell Technologies family. You, you touched on the traditional server and networking business, and then there's the storage as well, you know, VMware for the software side, Pivotal. Uh, so they've got their hands and their fingers in a lot of pies or whatever the phrase is that I probably <laughs> just butchered. But, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting how tepid investor reaction was. And it's likely, as you said, all that debt they took on with the EMC acquisition and then once again bringing the company public has... Uh, had somewhat of an impact on the reaction uh, to this revenue. So they have to kind of keep it up, I guess you could say, uh, to maintain investor confidence over time, which, you know, sometimes bothers me, sometimes doesn't when the investors rule what technology companies do, but it makes sense because we're all, they're all in it to make money at the end of the day. And oh yeah, make a, the world a better place after they've made their dollar. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I always have to wonder if that Dell EMC acquisition goes down, if Dell was public at that time, you know, based on the the debt load that they would have had to take on and, and having full visibility, you know, into their financials. But now that it's already done, you know, it's, it's out there. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, now living with that reality as a public company is, is a very different proposition. So very, very interesting. Absolutely. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that going and, forward. And I personally think it was the right move, even if the investors don't for the long term for the strategy of basically, as we said, being a more diverse company than just a server and storage company. So, yeah, maybe investors agree with me. Maybe they won't long term, but I, I thought it was the right move. Well, another right move, I think, is the World Wide Web Consortium approved the Web Author, uh, Authentication API, known as WebAuthn, as a web standard for passwordless logins. This allows users to use biometrics, mobile devices, and FIDO keys to log into devices and services. Uh, WebAuthn already has support from Windows 10 and Android, as well as Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Apple Safari, and Microsoft Edge browsers. Um, we just published a non-premise IT roundtable podcast episode all about password etiquette, how often you should change your password, and, and all sorts of good stuff from there from Security Field Day. Uh, does this lay the groundwork for more secure and ubiquitous multi-factor authentication, or do you think this will eventually just phase out the password as we know it can? I would love to see the password phase out and, and die a, a slow death eventually, but I never count anything out in the technology realm because somebody's still going to need to authenticate to that mainframe in the basement of the bank or whatever. Uh, so I'm really encouraged to see authentication brought forward into the 21st century, and I certainly will take advantage of it whenever I have the opportunity. Um, Hopefully it makes phishing uh, of somebody's grandmother a lot more difficult because now you need her fingerprint rather than her password and she can't really give you that over the phone. Uh, but, you know, yes, it's progress. And yes, we should all adopt different standards other than simple passwords. But um, I, I won't count on the password dying anytime in the near future. Will password be the mechanical hard drive uh, of security? There you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It yeah, offers the availability or I, whatever. I, I really recommend anybody that's watching, uh, check out that uh, on-premise IT roundtable about passwords. We had, uh, you know, talking about multi-factor, talking about, um, you know, how often you should change your passwords um, the, and the arguments pro and against. I, it was a really interesting debate. There wasn't really a consensus, uh, which is kind of, scary when you're talking about security, but gives you a lot to think about. And uh, I thought was it was really great. So make sure you check that out. Gestaltit.com slash podcast. Well done. And finally, uh, talking about just an interesting development here. We had last week, I believe we talked about Microsoft releasing the HoloLens 2. And now we have a job posting stating that Facebook is planning to release a dedicated enterprise edition of the Oculus Go and Oculus Quest headsets. Uh, like I said, we got HoloLens from Microsoft. New Google Glass was just released, um, which is living this bizarre life that no one knows about um, <laughs> in warehouses and medical uh, practices and that kind of stuff. HTC is increasingly aiming their VR headsets at corporate clients, at this kind of enterprise audience, you know, these kind of standalone headsets that don't necessarily go for any kind of – are deprioritizing maybe the photorealism uh, and the gaming chops of the original Vive headsets and now are you know going after these corporate clients. Is there a legitimate enterprise use case here, or is this a result of company realizing, hey, we spent all this money developing this cool VR, AR, mixed reality, whatever you want to call it, technology. Consumers really aren't into it. We got to make money off it somehow. Enterprise? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the latter, uh, basically. <laughs> um, you know, this reminds me, it feels like the early days of a technology that hasn't found its use case, right? Uh, it reminds me of when tablets started coming out in the early 2000s before the iPad. Everybody was trying to, you know, create some kind of market segment in the enterprise and nothing stuck. And then everybody started buying iPads for the home use and for their kids. And then all of a sudden they found different uses for it in the enterprise. And I kind of want to throw it back on you and say, could we see consumer technology drive enterprise adoption of AR or VR in the future? once it gains adoption, you know, in the mainstream first. You know, I, I think that's interesting because 
the initial idea uh, right of a i mean i'm first of all i'm uh, like an ar stan right i vr is like fine i don't want to wear like giant big goggles ar is so much more interesting to me um but you know initially we saw we saw google glass kind of maybe trying to do the light ar trying to basically put a cell phone in your eye or something like that Mm -hmm. we've seen microsoft approach which is much more okay, we're going to have crazy stuff coming out of here. We're going to replace monitors by just having the idea, you know, just having flat panes that you can move around. It's a little bit more interactive. I think, I still think that Google Glass idea is a better idea. And we've seen, I want to say it's a company called Vaunt uh, do some consumer uh, glasses that actually don't look like um, like dystopian uh, cyberpunk <laughs> wear. They just look like kind of just regular thick um, plastic glasses. I think that has put more potential to catch on with consumers who just want to maybe have a, a way to deal with notifications, maybe listen to some music, um, that kind of stuff. Even though it's still a, it's still a tough ask, right? Because I don't think we have, we definitely don't have the UI down, right? We don't have no. the hardware down. So right now we're mostly like, does this demo video make a compelling use case for consumers? Yes. And then I, I do think maybe that is the way we go, right? Because then people start wearing them to work. They want to sync up their their exchange accounts, their their work Gmail, their G Suite accounts, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, enterprise, like just like what happened with cell phones, enterprises eventually just kind of be like, okay, we're going to need to deal with this at some point. And Apple will be three years late to everybody, whatever, that's fine. Um, but but all of a sudden they'll bring out a product that captures the imagination for, for whatever reason. Yeah. Even though it has no particularly <laughs> unique technology in it, everybody will be really fascinated with it and start snatching they'll it up. They'll have a fantastic story around it. And that often is what matters. And then we'll, there'll, really be great foldable, there'll be a foldable display too at the same time. There'll be, you can, oh, there'll be boy, like yeah. the roll-up huh. shades you get from your eye doctor but they'll be wearable AR suite glasses. You, you like can it. fold your um, AR glasses into a monocle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now I'm liking Yeah, and then bust them out when you need the full uh, VR experience. <laughs> I like this. Ken, for more hot takes like that, where can people find you on the cyberspace? You can find my writing on gestaltit.com, and you can find my uh, less professional thoughts on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbone. Excellent. Uh, you can find me on the tweets as well. I'm at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. And on gestaltit.com. Like I said, check out that podcast and subscribe to the on-premise IT roundtable while you're at it. It's free. What are you going to do? Uh, we'll be back next yeah. week uh, for more uh, IT news goodness. We'll get Tom's take, I think, on what's happening at RSA. Uh, that's not like a copyrighted phrase, Tom's take, but it should be. Um, should so be, yeah. check this. Check us out next Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern time for more Uh, for a further rundown of the IT news. Until then, for Ken Nalbon, for myself, for everyone in the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.